and welcome to Autoholics Anonymous by The Autoholic. I'm Stephen Diamond. In this episode, Ryan and I give a brief background on ourselves and talk about the search for what may be my next car purchase. So stay tuned for the possible winner. So everybody, welcome to the Autoholic podcast number three. We don't have the number at this point. <laughs> I'm not sure because I didn't finish editing the last ones, but it's going to be three, four, or five. If this, I am certain. Well, you know, our, our podcast is called Autoholics Anonymous. So welcome <laughs> to Autoholics Anonymous. Right. Salute. <laughs> yeah, we drink and talk about cars we're addicted to. <laughs> so I'm drinking a 2013 Hans Rebholtz. Uh, sparkling Riesling. So I I went and visited this guy. He's in Faltz, Germany, um, which is like maybe an hour south of um, uh, Frankfurt. Beautiful countryside. And uh, it was interesting. The vines in the area are like, you have one hillside, and this is like a little, like an area where people grow this hillside. So the hillside will have a name. And you have one vineyard here, one vineyard here, one vineyard here, like Essentially, if you could imagine staircases, the width of a staircase, each vineyard is a staircase. So like right on top of another different wine producers. So it's interesting to know that people are like growing under the same conditions and it's only a matter of what they change. That makes them Harvest, how much water they give, you know, and so on, which gives the wine the different taste. Hmm. So this is his sparkling wine, which we just had with some barbecue today because it's pretty dry, so you need like something to give it some grip, and it's really, really good. Mine might not always be as interesting as yours. No, the, the Corona is a little more, uh, you know, standard, but uh, Stephen is drinking a light beer, handcrafted uh, <laughs> in Mexico. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add? Goes well with the lime? Goes well with the lime. So, uh, I, I have in mind, uh, Stephen, uh, j- just again, a quick introduction, because I don't think you all know who we are, but I, I'm Ryan Abranovic. I live in, in Monterey, Mexico, and uh, I, I'm uh, originally from the New York area. Steve and I met up in college in New England, and, uh, we, you know, we met because we saw each other's cars. Really, I saw his car. He drove yes. an 80s Mercedes in college, which was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, we, we're just total car geeks, so we're we're starting this podcast up so you guys can hopefully join in on our bullshit conversations on <laughs> on cars and uh yeah i'm steven diamond i grew up uh in connecticut and like ryan mentioned we met in college and i now live in brooklyn new york um where i don't have a car with me every day yeah pretty much steven doesn't drive cars anymore so anything you hear him say about driving dynamics like total bullshit he doesn't even know what cars feel like i've lost my touch completely now <laughs> well meanwhile he's on a he's on a move out of new york program i don't know it's whether it's a long or short-term program you're on a move out of new york program eventually i'm not there forever but yeah i, I might bring a car to new york so speaking of which Last time we talked about Steven's cars, we talked really about three cars for you, a 986 Boxster, mm-hmm. a 1 Series convertible, yeah. and a 500 Abarth, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you're at home, you're, it's quarantine, 
you must yeah. be thinking about this. Uh, tell us, tell us uh, what you've been thinking about. Um, I mean, being home, it's, uh, you know, I think, okay, like if I came from the city and I was here, I'm here for a while, what car do I wish I, I had? And I think, you know, driving a Fiat 500 outside of the city in any circumstance is a very terrible experience, I would imagine. I don't think it would be very, like, enjoyable at all. Hang on. I just want to pause you here because it's, uh, you would be surprised that I say this, but actually, it's a nice car to drive. I've really enjoyed it over the years. My first experience with the Fiat 500 was in Paris when I was studying abroad. Mm-hmm. My dad and I rented one. It was like this little purple thing. And it, it actually had like big wheels on it. So it was kind of neat because it was like a basic car, but it had these big wheels and it was purple. And uh, we rented it and we drove it to um, Fontainebleau, uh, one of the castles outside of Paris. And we drove and we had a nice drive there. And on the way back, I drove and it was bumper to bumper traffic. And it was a bitch. And and this car had like a 1.2 liter engine, mm-hmm. which was actually nice. It like revved nicely and sounded good and everything. But like little tiny engines like that in traffic kind of suck because uh, it's you not like no torque just, or anything to get going. No torque, right? You, you got to like dance around with the pedals to keep the car going. And it was like, and and you know it has pretty loose suspension, so the the the, the Fiat is like this. It's like. Vroom, vroom. Yeah, you have such a short wheelbase that you feel every you just, single. You could feel the car every time you stopped or accelerated. But honestly, cruising that thing around some bends and like uh, whatnot was more fun than I expected. Mm. But you're probably right that the nicest place to drive it is on city streets, where it actually makes city driving enjoyable. Right, and I mean uh, with your point on the suspension, everything. And I mentioned this last time, you know, with a short wheelbase car, you're going to, you're going to feel all that. And, you know, Brooklyn roads, as you've experienced are terrible. Terrible. Uh, do not bring a, a 996 into the city. Um, yeah. Or prepare to suffer, especially if it's on the big wheels with little tiny tires and likely blown suspension. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that part of it would probably be not be the most enjoyable. But, you know, in Brooklyn, we had Car2Go, which is a uh, service that Daimler offered to, where you could just rent uh, smart cars, smart 4.2s, uh, and pay per the minute. I believe it was like 41 cents per minute. And it was amazing. And actually, they, they don't have it in the city anymore. And it devastates me. But it was only in Brooklyn. You couldn't take it to Manhattan, which I loved. Yeah, right. For for you Brooklynites. Right. <laughs> it was for the JYC crowd. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, you know, driving those around, I never had an issue about you know short wheelbase. It, 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 I never complained that the ride was shitty because you're going you know 20 minutes here, you stop there, and then you park, and it's so easy. Um, so it serves its purpose. But to take that outside the city. And actually, I think one time when we were coming up to um, to hang with you and our and our Ross um, at your family's place in New York, upstate New York, we actually saw someone in one of these car to goes. I remember that actually. I I do remember we discussed. 
and it just seems like the most miserable thing. You could take it out, you could pay per day, and just take be like, it out. Ah. like who would want to take that on on such a long road trip or anything? Um, and so I just imagine, and I and I could be wrong that a Fiat 500 would be, you know, very similar to that. And if especially with an Abarth, which might have some stiffer suspension, uh, might not be as enjoyable to take. Uh, up to Connecticut or up to Boston or, you know, anywhere else for a drive of two hours or so. No, it's true. You know, you drive cars like this that are with short wheelbases and, and stiff suspension over long times on the highway. And it's like, it, it, it just bums you out because you want to love these cars. But I feel that in the, in the Northeast, again, I'll say this again, where you specifically where you grew up in Connecticut, I think is quite unique in the roads you have, but in general, I don't believe we have the roads that are so great for tiny cars. You know, you, yeah. it's just like it's a lot of highway driving to get to something that you would enjoy. Right. Especially if you live in New York City. Right. No, exactly. You know, going out to visit my brother in Jersey or something, it just it wouldn't be so enjoyable to to go out and do that. But I do think we thought of a, a few other cars after we had this conversation, um, and I, I brought up the Fiesta ST, which I think is a good balance of, it's still pretty small. I believe it's actually smaller than a Toyota Corolla, which I was shocked it is, It's very small. I've driven a Fiesta ST. And I hear they're great to drive. And I was always a big fan of when Jeremy Clarkson did his, uh, you know, realistic uh, road test of that. And, and, you know, it just seemed like such a fun car. Was that the one that you compared to the Alpha 147? No. No, this is just the one where he took it into the, the shops and drove it into things and then took it on the beach and did the the assault onto the beach from the uh, with the, the military guys. I don't oh, know if you remember. That one again. I don't recall it. Yeah. Hey, you know what that car drives like, to tell you the truth? Vigan? It's exactly like the Vigan. Really? I'm serious. It's just like it. Even to the extent of you have the steering wheel here, you have to reach like way down with a shifter. <laughs> it, when I drove it, I thought this is a sob. Interesting. Yeah. So from that perspective, I don't know if you'd feel like you had progressed. <laughs> just <laughs> well, just staying be, constant. It would be a, a whole decade newer. Yeah, but I don't know that it, I mean, maybe less creaky and rattles, but I bet the Vigan is better at 150 than that car. <laughs> That's probably true. Yes. Um, how is the handling when you drive the Fiesta SD? Does it, did it feel rubber band like, you know, in a Vigan? Uh, yes, actually. I would say that the handling was very similar. So there, there are a couple things I think about when I think about the Vigan. One is that it's, it's very light and pretty big steering. The second is when you get on the gas and it starts, um, the the wheel starts spinning, you get this very, there's a specific feeling of the steering wheel when the wheel starts spinning in that car. I don't know if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if it gets lighter or heavier, but there's this very specific, and it becomes not like the smoothest thing, right? Because you're going between wheel spin and non-wheel spin, and it's pretty vague to begin with. I had the exact same experience in the Fiesta from a steering wheel perspective. But the problem for me was with the Fiesta was that I drove it. And I, so I had an interesting experience when I drove it. I drove 
That day, I had driven a Subaru WRX, a new GTI, mm-hmm. my Jetta, mm-hmm. a 1.4T Jetta, and uh, a Focus ST. A Focus ST. Yeah, so I got to drive the Fiesta and Focus back-to-back. The, the GTI was first, then the Subaru, and then there was and the Jetta in between all of them, obviously. What year Subaru? Uh, they, they were all new at the time, so it was like right when the Fiesta came out, I guess that was... 14? Mm, no, that sounds like too long ago. It was probably 16. I mean, may, I must have driven it a few years after it came out, but um, it was it was 16, probably. Okay. And uh, I... Uh, well, first of all, the WRX just sucked. I, I, I drove it and I was like... Why would anyone buy one of these? It was just such an utter piece of shit in comparison to all the other cars. It was yeah. unbelievable. Like, I thought to myself, that, you know, I love the idea of a boxer engine, but there's nothing that I like about those Subaru boxer engines. They sound rough. The power delivery is extremely laggy for a modern car. And I don't like the clutch. I don't like the steering feel. I don't like the shifter. I, I pretty much just don't like those cars. Um, <laughs> and this drive, you know, confirmed that. Um, I drove the GTI as well, and the GTI was very, I thought it was nice. I thought it was very sterile. It just, mm-hmm. you know, this shifter was very, like, notchy. It didn't have, like, a nice throw to it. Um, the power band was just very flat. There wasn't, like, any excitement. And the steering feel, you know, Specifically, I've driven a lot of GTIs. And, uh, actually, I've only driven a Mark II, a Mark IV, a Mark II, a Mark V, a Mark VI, and a Mark VII. The Mark II was like a VR6 swapped car, mm-hmm. so it was like a handful, and I was a little scared when I drove it. Mark V I had for a long time. It was my dad's uh, car, and he gave it to me when I was in high school, and I loved that car. It was great. The thing, I, two things I didn't like about it. One, this you know, I was learning how to drive stick at the time, albeit, but I always felt like the synchros going into second gear, like you couldn't shift gears so quickly with that car. It was very mm. bulky. And the other thing was that, uh, two things actually. One, I felt like you were always pushing down on the pedals, like you sat too high. So it was a little like, what am I driving? A van? Like, you know, right, right. <laughs> and then the third thing was that the brakes were just like horrible, you know, and I was this 16, 17 year old idiot just going as fast as I could and breaking as hard as I could into every corner. Doesn't sound like anything has changed since you were 16. Though. Believe it or not, I'm more concerned. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it, you know, it just was a little disappointing on that. But overall, it was an awesome car, you know, and the sound and everything, it was really fun. And the steering was very good. And the Mark VI, I would say, was the same, it, probably even better, because you sat a little bit lower. And the uh, the the, sh- the the, the uh, transmission was was faster. I don't know. It could be. I was driving Rosses, which had 100,000 miles. Maybe the transmission loosened up over time, right? Mine only had 30,000 miles. But mm-hmm. um, the Mark VII, in comparison to those, I felt like just got way sterile. Everyone mm-hmm. still loves it and talks about it as the baseline. But I always had problems like, you know, there's a thing for me with cars. Some cars you can get in and you can kind of just thread down a road and it feels really natural and you get a flow with them. Right. I would even say your Vigan is one of those cars, even considering yeah, you, how, how vague the steering is. You can get a nice flow with it. I never felt that with the Mark 7. 
but with the five and six, I did. So with the so following that, I got into the focus. Mm-hmm. I do feel that way with my Jetta, by the way, which is interesting. You can get into a flow very easily. It's not like the most rewarding car. It's it's very one dimensional. You know how what happens to the limited understeers, and there's nothing more. But right. it's it's very easy to get a nice flow with the data road and drive smoothly a bit fast. Um, the Fiesta I found was less so. It was maybe more like the GTI in in the, in the sense that I just never really got like this flow with it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I got out of that and I thought, well, this was too small. I didn't really like it. It was just a little too buzzy. I got into the Focus and the Focus was phenomenal. It was actually my, my favorite of the, of the whole lot of cars, which I never expected as a German car guy. But yeah. the Focus blew the water out of every all the hot hatches, in my opinion. I loved that ST. It had just such a great engine with torque, but a very peaky power band. So it was exciting. Mm-hmm. And, and the steering and the, the seats and everything, you just felt like you had the right mass under the car to just whip it around. So you should look at the prices on the Focus ST if you're going to look at the Fiesta, is my opinion on that. No, right. And I do think the Focus is, uh, even at this age, uh, like the same year, are probably at least five to $8,000 more. More? Really? Yeah, the focuses definitely retained their value a lot better than the Fiestas did. I'm going to fact check you real quick. Let's see about yeah, that. That's just my inclination uh, and doing quick research on trying to find a few Fiestas. Um, but you can get yeah. you can get a, a Ford Fiesta ST with reasonable miles, you know, under, you can get one with $100,000, 100,000 miles plus for like eight. Um, but anything with 40,000 or so is more of 12 to 15, depending on how good it is in condition. I imagine uh, Focus STs are, you know, 15 plus. Well, the thing about it, I, I, that sounds expensive to me, to tell you the truth, because I would think about these Focus STs as being a little bit cheaper after all the time that's gone by, um, although I'm not so sure about this. My, uh, I remember my cousin bought a uh, Focus, not an ST, obviously. Wow, by the way, just as I was on AutoTrader, mm. it was a Focus RS listed for $70,000. That is absolutely bonkers. That is bonkers. that has, like, lost their mind. Yeah, actually, I'm seeing a 2016 Focus ST with 40,000 miles for $15,000. Yeah, so it's right in the same uh, ballpark, huh? Uh, that, that is, yeah, it's just a maybe like two or three grand difference there then. And I'm seeing a, a 90, 95,000 mile one for $12,000. These are in Ohio, by the way. But <laughs> 17 Focus ST, 48,000 miles, 14 grand. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'd do one of these before I did that. But to tell you the truth. It's a bigger car, though. If I were you, I wouldn't get something like this after the Viggen. Too similar. Yeah, you're getting a hot hatch to a hot hatch. And, and honestly, to tell you the truth, I, I think in a way you might be disappointed with anything after the Viggen because that's just such a unique and characterful car. Right. No, that's true. That's a that's a good point. I mean, the the Fiat 500 is a hot hatch as well. But it's but it's also unique and characterful in yes. a different way. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, a one series convertible definitely would not be, but you know, I think I'm okay with going away from a little bit of you know the character in in uh, you know in order to gain some reliability um, and just more modern um, with less miles uh, and less maintenance. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's all about convenience for me, you know, for the city. It's true. The one thing I think about when you mentioned BMW, though, is I never thought of you as much of a BMW guy. For I'm example, not. when I, I'm like, I'm floored by my E36. I love the engine, the way it revs out and the shifter and all the feel of everything. But when you drove it, for example, I, I, you weren't crazy about it. No, that is true. I mean, maybe I need more time to spend in it. Um. I would say, though, that that car, for example, that to me is very characteristically BMW. Right. No, like I even Mike's it. M5, I remember when he drove us around, it was a similar thing. No peaky engine power, very smooth, you know, kind of just this weighted responses, nothing that's going to surprise you. Very right. balanced. Yeah, very balanced. Yeah, I mean, I think for a, a car that I would use to get back and forth and take on you know, kind of some road trips or, or so that that might not be too bad i mean you're driving around the city you don't want any turbo boost like you have in in the vegan or anything like that because you don't have as soon as the boost kicks on you're, you're probably gonna have to stop right um so yeah that might be a good thing uh and i've only driven two bmws in my life i actually scratch that three um you didn't drive my e46 I drove your no, I didn't drive your your um, the silver car. No, I did not drive uh, that one. Um, you crashed it before I could get into it. This is true. <laughs> I had one thirty-second ride in it. And then so you drove later, you drove my E36 quickly. Your, that topic. We'll save that for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, your E36. Um, and I'm thinking of just manual BMWs. Um, I'll never forget, just a quick a quick parenthesis. When Steven drove my E36, I said, Steven, the clutch is like going to go. It's old and, and it, I can feel it. It's like on its last legs. This fucking guy revs it up to three grand and lets off the clutch like. <laughs> just I could I could hear the dollar signs adding up in my ear. <laughs> so it was like so it was starting the car. It's unbelievable. Um, I had to see how gone it really was. Um, um, yeah, so I drove yours. I drove uh, Mike's E90 3 Series 328. How was that, by the way? I've always wanted to drive one of those with a stick. They're not bad. Uh, it's actually the only thing is, and, and I don't know if this is typical characteristic of BMWs because I haven't driven too many. Uh, especially a manual, I didn't find that the clutch was very forgiving at all. Like, in, it was very difficult to be smooth. It's interesting. I, I have a very divided opinion which, on BMWs with this. My which E36 yours, I didn't is find easy. Either. Right. I, I think that mine is extremely easy, my E36. Yes, I would agree with that. But my E46 was very challenging. Yeah. And uh, and I've driven an E90. It was used, albeit, and not in good shape. It was also very challenging. So you have driven an E90. Maybe. I did, but like I don't even count it because it was like a sh- on a shitty used car lot. So like it was in bad shape. Okay. It was 330. 
with those, do you remember the, the, the 2006 330? Hang on, I'm just going to show you the picture. I keep thinking about more manual BMWs that I've driven as I talk. Because <laughs> I drove the 1 Series all across Spain and Portugal. And I had a blast in that, a 118i. So, hang on a second. I loved that car. It was, it was a diesel. So it was 115, actually. 115D. Do you want E90, the 330? Hang on, hang on. Here we I mean, go. I don't know what your mics is. Uh, I'm going to show you what I'm talking about here. How do I share my screen? This yeah. is the, uh, the one I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And specifically, these wheels, I always loved this look at the time. It was so, uh, I don't know, it's very period, I would say, mid-2000s style. Right. Um, I, this is what I drove. So it was an early E90 okay. uh, with those wheels, and it was in very bad shape, and it drove like shit, to tell you the truth. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, I mean, in terms also, of... Also, just one comment on your 1 Series point. Sure. I love the way that car drives. I've driven one, two, three. I've driven at least three of them with a stick in Europe, and every time they were outstanding. And, yeah. and had little shit engines. The ones I drove right. too. It had a it had a three cylinder diesel, but it was still fantastic. Yeah. No. If we had that in the U.S., I'd probably be getting that car. Like no questions asked. Absolutely, I agree. It's a, it's a phenomenal all rounder. Yeah. But also, I will say that it was phenomenal all rounder for Europe because of the roads and the size of the roads. Right. It might be a little bit like you might rather have a bigger car here. Yeah. No, and and I don't you know the, those engines probably wouldn't work here, but. Um, I don't know if uh, if they had anything bigger, whether it would still feel, still have that character to it. So uh, my girlfriend's brother here in Mexico drives a 120i with a sport pack on it. And it's got like uh, the turbo four BMW engine. It's an automatic, unfortunately, but it's a great looking car. It's gray with like a cinnamon brown interior, leather, sport seats and everything. And uh, he has, he puts some exhaust on it, yeah. and and we'll go around these corners, and he'll just drift it around the corners, and it, it it's fun, honestly. I, I haven't driven it yet. Hopefully, he'll give me the uh, opportunity. But uh, it's 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 a fun car still. I mean, I, I would miss the stick though. Yeah, and I mean that's why I'm considering you know uh, a one series convertible even because I do even hear that the one twenty eight eyes are very decent engines. Um, I do believe that the naturally aspirated sort of lower out power output six cylinders that BMW has produced, I think are really sweet for, excuse me, regular driving because um, they're not as peaky and they're, they're not as like aggressive. So it just feels great to thrash them all the time. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's, yeah, I am considering a one series and, and you know, in that sense, um, but back to all the manual BMWs I've driven, uh, besides the E90, that one series in Europe, uh, yours, I drove a um, a 318 Ti. Uh, that was you drove the little hatchback? E yeah, yeah. Um, but I drove it on the inner track at Lime Rock, and it had, you know, uh, suspension set up, and it was on a wet track with, with totally flattened uh like no grip tires and it was just for in order to do car control and drifting but it was so much fun and that was and it was a piece of shit car it had like 300,000 miles on it 
uh, you didn't feel secure at all, but you would go 20 miles per hour, just crank the wheel and the back end would come around and all you do is just counter steer and a little throttle and just, it felt amazing. It was very rewarding. Speaking of short wheelbases, that car always looked so funny to me because it's like they took a three series, chopped a quarter of it off. Right. And, and, and then just like, you know, added the wheels there. And it, I mean, it, it must be very snappy, I would imagine. Yeah. It just, it goes on you like that. And next thing, you know, a lot of times if you don't catch it just right, or you're not smooth with it, it will go fully around on you. At least this one did. Or at least for you, you know. Well, I mean, <laughs> you got to get used to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, uh, I, you know, I I think uh, BMW manuals, at least the modern ones from the E90, was not very forgiving. But uh, I'd be curious how they are, uh, in you know, in the one series that we have here and, and things like that. The one series that I did drive. Remember, I told you I drove a one coupe. The 128 mm. coupe. The manual reminded me of what you're saying about the E90. Yeah. So supposedly BMW put this thing in, which is called a clutch delay valve, and they put like essentially, if you if you think about it, right, you press the clutch, and that means you move all of the fluid in order to the hydraulic fluid in order to move the clutch away. What they did was they put a you releasing the clutch lets the fluid back in to let the clutch, you know, up to the engine. Yeah. They put like a, a one-way valve or like a, it's a two-way valve, but one-way flows, you can let the clutch off as quickly as you want. When you're letting the clutch out, this valve essentially, assuming that people don't know how to drive stick, it, it, it only lets the, the oil flow back more gradually. Mm. So, so a lot of people have complained on the forums. They say, hey, if you know how to drive manual, it's frustrating because it, it, it doesn't seem to react the way you're expecting because of this delay. Mm-hmm. I don't know about it though, because I've driven like Ross's buddy, Andrew had a, a 330 ZHP like mine, but his clutch was like super easy and he hadn't gotten rid of that clutch delay valve. So I'm almost tempted to say that maybe on a lot of the used BMWs that I've driven, that the clutches were toast. Mm. So like, Maybe the clutch on my 8036 is not toast, and that's what a good BMW clutch feels like. And the one on the on the one series and the E90 that I drove uh, were getting towards their end of their life. And and my E46, it would make sense. My E46 had 75,000 miles. It was probably, you know, towards the end of the clutch life comparatively. Right. Right. So uh, meanwhile, though, my E36 has 85,000 miles, and I don't think the clutch has ever been changed. <laughs> So I don't know what I'm, what I, what point I'm really making here. No, no hard scientific facts, but it, it's an interesting thing. I, and I wonder what the difference feels if you take that out. No, that's true. I would think though, in general, if uh, on an older clutch uh, or the older life of the car, that valve might be not as effective, and maybe it would be more enjoyable as a person who knows how to drive a manual car, and so maybe. Uh, it would be <laughs> that would be just my natural train of thought on that. I'd I'd uh, argue that what if there was gunk in the valve over the years and the valve got even more clogged up as time went on? So it just makes it worse. Could be. Yeah. Who knows? This is yeah, like pie in the sky speculation. <laughs> but uh, 
So anyway, so you were saying that essentially you have mixed reviews on BMWs. You've liked some of them. You haven't been as smitten about others. Right. Let me ask you now, now that we're on the topic of specifically my three series, what, what weren't you so huge about with that car? I mean, maybe I, was in, I wasn't in the best seating position, and I think that does play a huge factor in it. That car is not easy to get a good seating position on because biggest gripe about the E36, the steering wheel does not move. Right. Yeah, so I think I felt too far away from the pedals, not close enough, not fully engaged with the car. You have to sit very close because of the steering wheel. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, when you got going, uh, it was very smooth and very enjoyable for a convertible. I don't think you could ask for anything more. Um, I, I don't think it uh, you know, begged for me to push it. I didn't feel inspired to, to push it. But when you're in a convertible, most of the time you just want it to enjoy uh, you know, the wind in your hair or whatever and just uh, go for a nice casual cruise. But you, you really do push that car and, and whip it around. It is. It actually is a lot of fun to push. I would say maybe the motor is more fun to push than the handling. Mm. So I love the way the mo- the motor responds so nicely up at Redline. I mean, it just it's so smooth and it revs out and it loves being, you know, just quick gear changes and and downshifts right up to Redline. That's really thrilling in that car. But the steering is incredibly slow. It has like what like I mean so much lock to turn in and so. From like a, a sporting perspective, in that sense, I don't think it's the most sporty. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's more. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a little more to 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 take it a bit more relaxed in the corners. Although I will say, when I do push it to the limit, and you and you know get the car sliding, even it, it's really fun at the limit. Like it's very yeah. balanced and easy. Because I think maybe in comparison to other cars I've had, it's quite long. Yeah. Like if you look at the back end, the back end looks pretty long on it. So when you slide it, it's it's like really easy to manipulate. Also, probably because of the engine, because it's such a smooth power band. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the steering is the is the most disengaging part for me because it's like. You know, <laughs> I, I'd compare it to like uh, like a, an old wood ship steering. You know, trying to move the rudders and. Yeah, that's I agree with you. Toss the wheel this way and then you wait for something to happen. It is kind of like that because it's, you know, I've had this experience in two cars, maybe also in my uh, my NA Miata. It's that little car and I expected it to be like super tossable and I had this super heavy manual steering that you needed like a lot of lock for. And it kind of ruined the car for me because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't giving me like the, the little you know excitement that I was hoping for. And this is similar, but I don't mind it as much because in a way it suits. So when you're going down a highway or you're not at the limit, it suits the smooth character of the car because it's all just very, you know, easy going. But uh, the newer one series, though, would be a, a bit more sporty feeling from that perspective. The, the steering would be much faster. I would expect that. Yeah. Although I do remember from at least uh, the one series I drove in Europe. I would compare it more to what your E36 feels like. No way. You 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 have a the, it's impossible. Your memory must be off on this. It's <laughs> like my E36 steering, I would compare it to like the one W126 maybe. 
I'm serious. It's it more similar to my S-Class than to another car. Yeah. Maybe I need more time in your 36. Yeah. No, it's it's boat, boat steering for sure. Yeah, I could go pick it up and, and use it for my time that I'm here in Connecticut. You could. I would be happy for you to drive it, honestly. If you want to, let me know. You can go, you can go take it. Because okay. I, I kind of feel bad that it's just sitting there. The only problem is... You need a, you need, it needs to be stored inside, right? It, it yeah. doesn't have a leak-proof top. Right. That's so, true. I mean, if you put a cover on the, on the outside, that would be fine, too. So, uh, our topic was classic cars to get us into these events. Hang on. One other thing on your car. Okay. So, we talked the hatchbacks. I feel like we kind of put them to the side. We talked about the BMWs, which I think still are a good option for you, mm-hmm. um, specifically the one series. Right. There is a 135 IS coupe for sale and bring a trailer right now. I don't know if you I, saw. No. It, uh, I'll pull it up real quick. It's, uh, I have BAT open as well. And there was, so you know, we're talking about the one series, and I think I mentioned in the past too, just considering you know, a Z3 as well and possibly a z4 and there was a a a 3.0 z4 that was on bring a trailer this week uh that you had sent me uh that had very low miles i think it was forty thousand miles or so and do you remember what that went for i think it was fifteen thousand fifteen fifteen thousand it had like it was like new essentially the car which seemed like a really good buy uh and a lot of car um, maybe a bit much money for for that car, but we we both agreed that we would much rather deal with the pains and pay the maintenance for a much higher mileage 986 Boxster than have well, that. Well, not even higher mileage. It, the the Boxster, the 10 grand Boxster, had 38,000 miles on it. On BAT, that went the same week. Right. Yeah, I'd much rather, which had one accident. In its history. No, no, no. That one didn't. It was clean. There were two. The one you're talking about had like 50,000 miles. So I'm going to show you this 135 IS here. I have it up myself, too. You found it? Yeah. Right, I'm going to stop. I sharing. hear great things about the 135s. So if you look at this thing, I mean, uh, it has a really, really nice look to it. And I yeah, like the red. It's a good, good spec. You know, uh, let's read it out. So as coral red. Leather interior with space gray metallic exterior. I see it has uh, carbon fiber uh, trim on it. Uh, interior and exterior has the carbon fiber uh, trunk spoiler lip, um, carbon fiber diffuser, black wheels. Yeah, it looks very sporty. Stuff. Yeah. And the thing that I think about is one of the cars that I grew up driving. Um, was my buddy's mother's 335i automatic transmission, mind you, convertible. And it was like a 2008, maybe, mm. a hard top convertible, the first of those. And uh, it was fast. I mean, we always were like, wow, this engine pulls. You know, we always were stunned by it. I have a great memory once. We, we went to a BMW show in Long Island somewhere, and we came back, and I drove into the city and I was driving down Park Avenue, and I remember top down Park Avenue, maybe like 80 miles an hour, just blasting and hearing the turbocharger and like lots of nice noises from this car. It was one of my first New York like thrill, thrilling drives, I would say. It's a good memory. 
Mm -hmm. So my point being is that what does that engine feel like in a one series? Holy shit, right? Yeah, I bet that's a good car. Right now it's uh, currently listed at 13.5 with three days left and it has 61,000 miles. It's in Florida. So what, what do you think it's going to go for? I was just I was just about to ask you. You beat me to the punch. Uh, I'm going to say three days left. I'm going to say 22. I was going to say 25, actually, believe it or not. This is, usually you estimate higher than higher I Higher than you. Yeah, but in this case, I, I would say maybe 25. I, I think it's a very desirable car. 25 does sound like a lot of money to me, though. But look, a 2003 or 2002 M3 with 100 and change on it, 1,000 miles, uh, just went for 23 on Bring a Trailer. So people, the one thing I will note about, excuse me, performance BMWs is that people seem to pay like an above, n above normal price for them. For just think, BM. Yeah, not just M's, but even sporty cars. I mean, think about it like this. So I'll give you one other example. My, so my dad just recently bought a 2017 BMW 7 Series with 18,000 miles or something. He paid 41,000 for it. So like that was a $98,000 car new. A $92,000 car new 2013 BMW M5 just sold on Bring a Trailer for 49. And I was thinking to myself, wow, like just when you, you know, knew they were like very in line price-wise. And then when you look at that difference, when you talk about years and mileage, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty shocking. It is. So I buy a slightly, you know, used performance car and then you chop off some of that depreciation. No, hang on. That's not what I'm saying. What? I'm saying that the, the, the 7 Series, mm. which was a 2017 and had less miles, went for 41. The 2013 M5, which had a, a lower uh, sticker when new than the 7 Series. The 7 Series was 98. The, the M5 was 92,000. Mm -hmm. The M5 went for 49 with more miles and four more years of age. Gotcha. So it's, it's like, I mean, it just when you talk about price new versus now, it's pretty amazing what those M cars are doing in comparison to other things. Right. Yeah, they're retaining their value a little bit better. Look at it, even compare that M3 against the S8 I just bought. My S8 is a 2001, the M3 is an 02. It's half the miles on my S8. And uh, and it went for $130,000 when new. Uh, and this this M3 went for, I don't know, what, 70, 60 when new, something like that. The M3 sold for 23 and mine sold for 16. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that cult following. Mm hmm. So I don't know. I, I think that this specific car is going to go for too much money for what it is. I don't think it's going to be what you want. Right. I think getting a cheap one series convertible like that is, get, is a much better bargain and you're going to have almost as much fun in normal driving. Right. No, I agree. It's like my E36 versus the M3 of the E36 Gen. Those go for 15 to 20, and mine was three grand. I mean, you know, 
it, it although you know I don't even know. My car doesn't even have any bad wear to it. It's like a decent condition car. It is. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. When you, I, I can't figure that it would be worth five times as much to have the M version. Yeah. I don't think so either. So in terms of where I think that we can make an interesting impact in the market, it's with uh, buying cars that are comparatively undervalued. Something like my 3 Series or anything along those lines where a comparable car is five times the price, but there's not that much of a difference in the enjoyment. Right. They're underappreciated at face value. Correct. I agree with that. So anyway, the, the point on this whole that I wanted to get to ending the BMW discussion was the 986, which is that you can now buy a 38,000 mile early 986 with the 2.5 motor, which in my opinion is the best of all of the 986 motors. Actually, not to lie, I haven't driven the S cars with the 3.2 and whatever, those probably are great, but the 2.7, I thought it was very similar to the 911, Stephen, mm-hmm. which in both your 911 and Jeff's that, that we drove, mm-hmm. I thought that the gearing was very long. Um, whereas in that and in the, in the 2.7 Boxster, it felt a little slow because of the long gearing. Right. In the 2.5, it had a much shorter gear ratio and it and less power for sure, but it felt more uh, snappy just because, right? Yeah, I think, uh, and another thing I pointed out is, you know, you can get a, a 9.44 that's, you know, so much older, has so many more miles, overall should be completely less desirable than a, than a 986 for just about the same price. Right. In fact, I think the one that sold on VAT had 140,000 miles. Oh, what, 944? The 944 Turbo with 140,000 miles, questionable repaints, sold for the same as a 38,000 mile, no accidents, clean 986. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's the deal. I... I, I the problem for me is that I just don't freaking fit in these cars. But for you, I, I truly believe it's the perfect car to buy. Yeah. I mean, if I lived outside of uh, New York City and, and saved a bit of money, uh, I, I would uh, I would probably not even blink an eye and I'd probably get a 986. Well, there you have it. Seems like the 986 is the car to get for me. Tune into future episodes and follow our adventures at the-autoholic.com or on Instagram at the.autoholic and Twitter at theautoholic, straight through. And see if I really end up with a 986. Also, in addition to what we are drinking each episode, listen in for our different introduction music, all written by either Ryan or myself. Credit to Ryan for the jingle in episode one, and the jingle you are hearing now is courtesy of yours truly. Thank you for listening, stay safe, but don't forget to drive fast and take chances. Cheers! This has been the Autoholic Autonomous Podcast. Please enjoy this short intermission. Brought to you by Corona. During the coronavirus.
This is the advertising for the alcoholic. Yep. Hoping Corona will sponsor us. They need some good advertising at this point. Yeah, they could use some advertising right now, that's for sure. They got a shit break on the name of this virus. 